I'm starting a new series this morning. How many of you are so thankful? Oh, he's finally done with that sermon on... Uh, no, I didn't. About two-thirds of the way through the Sermon on the Mount, um, I, I have been looking ahead and planning and praying, what would I do next? Because I knew eventually the sermon, I would run out of Sermon on the Mount and, and I would need something next. And, and then um, uh, God impressed on my heart that Jesus has more to say to us. And since we haven't looked at this part of the scripture in years, as far as I know, um, uh, God, God said, go ahead and keep talking about what Jesus has to say to his people. Only, only uh, Dennis, I want you to go to the end of the Bible. And I want you to choose those first three chapters in the book of Revelation and look at what Jesus says to his church now. So, I'm going to introduce that this morning. And then we're having the anniversary Sunday next Sunday. And then uh, the first Sunday in October. Uh, and right up until Thanksgiving, we'll be looking at seven messages that Jesus has for his church. In Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. I want to introduce that this morning by um, looking at chapter 1. Now, on, on the screen you're going to see starting in verse 4, but I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3 first and get ready because there's something really cool that you're going to hear in verse 3. Revelation 1.1, 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Listen to this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. That's cool. I'm reading it aloud right now. But listen to this. And blessed are those who hear. See? And who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Oh, that reminds us of what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, the wise one is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. The blessed one is the one who hears these words of mine and keeps them. And he says, for the time is near. Now, this was written almost 2,000 years ago, and we have been in this near time ever since. But um, like I've, I, I said to my kids when we were traveling on a road trip, and they, and they said, are we there yet? Everybody has heard this. Everybody has said this. When it was your turn, you said it. And uh, in my infinite wisdom, I said, well, we're closer than we were five minutes ago, which is really, unless you're going the wrong direction, always true, right? If you're going in the right direction, you're closer to your destination than you were a minute ago. 
And every morning when the sun comes up, we are one day closer to the last day that the sun will come up, right? And on that day when the sun comes up, it's going to stay up. It's not going to go down again. The time is near and we are all, we are all living in the last days. We just don't know how many days are part of the last ones. But we are in the last days. And some of you, I know some of you are really thinking, looking around and saying, how many more last days can there be? I, I've heard a lot of you ask that question. I've, asked, I've been asking myself this question since the first time I ever heard a pastor talk about the last days, more than 50, probably almost 60 years ago, when I first heard a pastor talk about them. So, Here's, here's where it begins in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, more about that in a minute, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. How many of you think of the book of Revelation as a book of prophecy? Well, I thought everybody would say. How many of you never raise your hand in church, no matter what? <laughs> just, just in case. The book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. It contains prophetic visions. Uh, and some of the prophetic visions uh, are really um, flashbacks to things that happened millennia before, and some of them are prophetic, prophetic visions of what is yet to come. And uh, we're going to uh, talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. Uh, Jesus, Jesus says to John, tell my people, tell my people, grace to you, God's grace to you, and peace be upon you from him, from God, who is, who is right now, who was, who always was, and who is to come, the eternal one. And, and he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And this is where we immediately start to say, wait, what? What are these seven spirits? Huh? Who are these seven spirits? What? And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. That's, uh, that's an auspicious beginning, isn't it? To him, to him who loves us. It's good to remind ourselves of that. This one that we've been singing about, this one that we've been singing to, this one that we worship, the one in whose name we gather, the one in whose name we pray, the God who is the creator and the sustainer of all that is, he is the one who loves us. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. God loves you. Everyone here this morning, at one time or another in your life, needs, needed or needs to hear that reminder. Where you're sitting right now, whatever, whatever stuff you brought with you into church this morning, 
Whatever stuff you're going to take back home with you. Whatever stuff is going on at home or at work. Know this. God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. Nothing you can do can make him love you less than he loves you now. Nothing you can do can make you love him more, can make him love you more than he loves you right now. God is all in and always has been. Somebody needed to hear that this morning. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We celebrated this in communion last Sunday. We remind ourselves uh, regularly. We remind ourselves that I have been set free, not by anything that I have done, but by the blood of the one who gave his life for me. It is his blood that sets me free. It is his life that gives me life. It is his sacrifice that breaks my chains. He has not only freed us from our sins, but he has made us a kingdom. Remind yourself of that. When you feel, when you feel the suction of political debate pulling at you. Remind yourself, whose kingdom are you a subject of? Jesus is not running for re-election. He does not have term limit. He has made us a kingdom. He has made us priests to his God and Father. And so to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And everyone says, Amen. Let it be so. Yes, I agree. To him be glory and dominion Forever and ever. Amen. And then, and then the vision goes on in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. John was one of those who, who heard this promise from Jesus himself and from the angels who attended his ascension into heaven. John heard and wrote the words of Jesus. We have them in John 14, verse 1. Uh, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's the promise of Jesus to his people. The promise was repeated and John heard it again in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven. Behold, he ascended into heaven and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were standing there gazing up into heaven, behold, two angels in white apparel stood before them saying, uh, Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who ha whom you have seen go into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. John heard that promise. He heard it from Jesus. He heard it confirmed by the angels. And so he reminds us here, he is coming. 
And he is coming with the clouds. And when he comes, every eye will see him. I don't know how that's going to happen. Uh, I understand geography. What I, what I don't get hung up in on is, can God overcome geography? Can, can God overcome physics? Can God make it possible for every eye on planet Earth? What's the number now? It's above 7 billion? Ticking toward 8 billion people on planet Earth now. That's almost 16 billion eyes. It's a lot of eyes. If he were to come today, if it was today, somehow God in his... uh, supernatural physics is going to make it possible for every one of those eyes, I think maybe even blind eyes. Hmm. Don't think about that one. Give sight to the blind, why not? Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. Well, well, that's a reference to the, uh, the, the enemies of, of the ones who The ones who wanted Jesus wiped out. The the spiritual enemies and the human hostages of the spiritual enemy who had deceived the nations into thinking that Jesus was their adversary and we'd be better off without him. Even those who are not looking with eager anticipation for the appearance of Jesus Christ, everyone will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Let me just ask you a question. Does this make you think of that beautiful song, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild? Not me. I mean, this sounds, this sounds like victory. This sounds like authority. This sounds like grand, majestic power. Those who are like you and I, eagerly waiting for this moment, we're going to be throwing ourselves on our knees with our hands raised up in celebration. And maybe a bunch of others are going to be throwing themselves to the ground with their, heads, with their hands covering their heads in fear and trembling. We suddenly realize we were dreadfully wrong. Oh God, have mercy on me. All right. Verse 8. I am... I am, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The, the Alpha, the first letter in the Greek alphabet. The Omega, the last letter in the Greek alphabet. And everything in between. I am the first and I am the last. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty One. That sounds really Old Testament-y. That's not a word. Okay, that's the prelude. That's the prelude to the introduction. Verse 9, verse 9 is the eyewitness account. I, John, your brother 
and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John, John, this is written at the very end of the first century. Somewhere between 90 and 100 A.D. To give you some reference, Jesus was born... We, our, our best understanding of this now, um, when, we first, when we first changed the calendar to, from B.C. to A.D., we got it wrong. Of course we did. And we changed it by saying that B.C. is before Christ and A.D. is uh, Anno Domine, in the year of our Lord. And we, we, started, we started over and we started counting um, on the wrong year. <laughs> Because Jesus was more likely born three years before the birth of Christ. In 3 or 4 BC is when the birth of Jesus almost certainly actually happened. Because we have historical records that tell us when uh, Caesar Augustus issued his proclamation that all the earth should be taxed. And when Herod the Great was reigning... And those, those important facts, those important dates are part of the story. And we have historical evidence to say when those things were happening. So uh, Jesus began his earthly ministry at the age of 30. And his arrest, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection happened three and a half years after that. So around 33 A.D., Around 30, around 30 A.D., 30 A.D., and then John's gospel was written 60 years later. 60 years later. John was the youngest of the 12 disciples, probably a teenage boy, when Jesus called him, James, his older brother, and him, and Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his cousins, and the other uh, eight that made the 12 disciples. John was probably the youngest and probably a teenager. Uh, And so he lived another 60 years after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And was the uh, the only one of the original apostles who did not lose his life as a martyr. He was not put to death as a martyr. More about that in a minute. John is also the writer of the Gospel of John, which is the last of the four Gospels to be written. And, and I have this imagining. I, I like to imagine things because God says, you imagine as big as you want, Dennis. I'm bigger than you're imagining. That's cool. How many of you have a big imaginer? It's not big enough, I'm just telling you. <clears throat> I imagine John's friends... Those who had, had um, become his followers and those who heard him tell his stories about walking with Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000 and all the other things that he talked about, uh, they probably pleaded with him, John, and they probably don't want to say this directly, but what they were thinking was, John, you're an old man. How much longer are you going to be with us? And we don't, we don't want to lose what you have. So would you please let us help you and write it down? 
so that even when you're gone, we'll still have a record of the stories that you've been telling us. And I think that's where the gospel according to John came from. This, on the other hand, this book of Revelation uh, was not coaxed out of John. It was spoken into John directly. John is our partner and brother in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And, and then we see the next verse. I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I mentioned to you that John was the only one of the original apostles that was not executed. But it wasn't because they didn't try. In his later years, he made his way to Ephesus, history tells us, and he was ministering in Ephesus among the disciples of Jesus there. And uh, Roman authorities and his opponents in Ephesus took him and they tried to kill him, according to history. This is not a legend. This is not a myth. This is a historical account. They got a big, a big... You remember the cartoons of cannibals throwing missionaries into a giant kettle? Okay. They had a giant vat filled with oil. Some kind of oil. I don't know what kind of oil. I don't know what kind of oil. But, but they lit a fire under it and they made the oil very hot. How many of you fried chicken or something else in your kitchen? You get a pot of oil very hot and then you throw something in it to cook it. Usually what you throw in the oil is already dead. It's been plucked or skinned. It's been dipped in flour and whatever else batter that you use. And you toss it in that hot oil. And when you do, it sizzles and spatters. And it turns nice and golden brown and delicious. Right? Well, in this case, these horrible people took John... And they got the oil as hot as they could get it. And they thought, we're going to toss him in the hot oil and cook him like a fryer. That's what they did. It's ugly, right? But you remember the story back in the book of Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and in the bed we go? That's what my mother called it. Shadrach, Meshach, and in the bed we go. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, uh, and uh, the king ordered them put into the fiery furnace. You remember the story. And they put them in the fiery furnace and slammed the door. The, the furnace was so hot when they put them in there that the soldiers that threw them in were incinerated. And Nebuchadnezzar looked through the little, little peephole that was built into the door of the furnace. And he said, didn't we throw three guys in there? Well, why do I see four men walking around in there? Why are they walking around in the fiery furnace? Open the door, and out they came, three of them. The other one did not come out. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, said, The fourth man is like unto a son of God. You, you, this, I'm not making this up, right? You know this story. 
Well, if, if God could preserve Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, then if God chooses to, he can preserve John from the vat of boiling oil. And that's what he did. John survived. I don't know if he came out of the oil unmarked or if he came out of the oil scarred and disfigured. I don't know. How about you? When God brings you through a trial in your life, do you come through it unmarked? Or do you come through it scarred and disfigured? Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other, right? Well, we don't know. There aren't any photographs. But John survived this. And the Roman authorities said, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, that was worse than not putting him in the oil. Because now that his followers are saying, there's a miracle. And every time they look at John, they remember the miracle. Which I think is a good reason for John to have some marks on him. Because the marks would remind you that God brought you through. It's part of the purpose of a scar, by the way. A scar is a reminder that something terrible happened to you, but you survived it. The benefit of having survived execution, it's kind of a funny thing to say, having survived execution is your followers are all the more encouraged and emboldened. And so the authorities did the smart thing from their point of view. They exiled John. We're never going to, it looks like we can't kill him. The best thing we can do is to get him out of sight. So people are not reminded every day that we tried and failed to kill this guy. And so they sent him to this small island of Patmos. I got a couple of maps uh, just to help give us a little bit of reference. That is a map of the Mediterranean Sea. You probably recognize it from geography. Uh, The map itself doesn't look quite so grand as the it's thousands of miles across from east to west you saw something like this back in the winter time when we talked about jonah right jonah tried to leave uh instead of going to nineveh he tried to go all the way all the way as far west as you could go which would be the uh, western end of the mediterranean sea you've all seen the rock of gibraltar that guards the entrance to the mediterranean sea because Prudential Insurance Company has taken it as its logo. Okay, there's a, there's a, a blow-up. You see my circle, my crude circle. Uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, we're going to focus in on that part, the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, just to give us a sense. And then the next map will show... Oh, man, this isn't going to be as effective as I hoped. It looks beautiful on my tablet. The island of Patmos, on the next slide, I have, it, I have a green arrow pointing to it. Do you see it? A green arrow. Uh, a green arrow pointing to this tiny island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. The island of Patmos is still there, of course. And it's off the coast of... Uh, right off the coast of Ephesus, which is the city where he was exiled from. Okay. 
That's a, that's a sense of where we're talking about in the world. So let's continue. John was on this island, and then he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I want to I talk about that for a second. What does it mean to be in the Spirit on the Lord's Day? Today is the Lord's Day. Some of us here this morning, hopefully all of us, but at least for sure some of us can say, could say, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. I was worshiping. I was praying. I was considering. I was thinking about God. I was thinking about Jesus. I was meditating on His Word. I was, I was not thinking about myself. I was not thinking about my circumstance here in exile on this volcanic hunk of rock. I was worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And I was surprised. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And uh, I was going to give this little... You've all been at a wedding ceremony. And, uh, you know, everything is beautifully decorated. The groom and the groom's party have come in from the side. Uh, They're dressed in tuxedos. They look like emperor penguins. The minister is standing up front next to the groom, uh, making sure he's got, his, he's got one arm behind him in case the groom collapses. He's going to try to break his fall a little bit. And in the back, and everybody knows what's coming, in the back, the double doors are closed. But we know what's behind the double doors. The bride and her attendants are waiting to come in, Right? And there's great anticipation. The music begins to play and you know it's just about to happen. And I was thinking that this scene is something like that, except it isn't because everybody in the room is looking in the right direction when the, group, when the bride comes through the door, right? The music, there's a crescendo and, and uh, the bride's party have come in, the, the ring bear and the ring bear. Ring bearer, ring bearer, ring bearer have come in and the flower girl and all the others, they've come in. And we know the next person to come through the door is going to be the bride. So we all know and we're all anticipating and we're all looking in the right direction. That's sort of the excitement that I felt in this passage, except John was facing in the wrong direction. And, and, This happened behind his back and he had to be turned around. And I wonder if that's not purposeful. I wonder if it isn't often true of me that even though I think I'm ready, even though I think I'm anticipating, even though I think I'm in the spirit on the Lord's day, in fact, I'm looking in the wrong direction. And I I really wonder how often that's true for us. That we're looking in the wrong direction. We're focusing on the wrong things. Maybe we're focusing on the things around us. Maybe there's nothing wrong in what we're focusing on. It's just not Christ that we're focusing on. So this voice breaks in to John's worship like a trumpet surprising him from behind. And he hears this voice trumpeting Write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, I've got some more maps. I'm going to go back to this map, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. I've tried to highlight. You probably can't even see it. You can. You helped me with the highlighting. Thank you. Ephesus. You see them there as, as I call them out, they'll be highlighted. Ephesus, and then Smyrna, right above Ephesus. And then Pergamum at the top of the uh, continent. And Thyatira, and Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The seven churches of Asia Minor. These are not the only seven churches in the world at this time. They are the seven churches that were most closely associated with John. Because John was serving in Ephesus, and the other six churches were part of a circle, a network of churches that were communicating back and forth. And to these seven churches, Jesus gives a message through John for each one of them. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw some symbolic things, seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, remember, John had walked with Jesus. He had been with him three years. He knew what Jesus looked like. He had seen Jesus after his resurrection, but he had not yet seen Jesus in his glorified state. And that's what is described here. In the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white. All of you in the room whose hair is going white, you're getting more and more and more like Jesus. There you go. Don't fight it. Jesus is making it happen. Stop resisting. I better not say any more. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. How many of you have been to a cascade of water where the sound is deafening? Niagara Falls in its glory and some other places where we've been. In his right hand, he held seven stars. I can't even, I can't even, my imaginer falls short of this. Uh, if, are, 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 they, are they somehow orbiting above his palm so that he's holding them, but they're distinctly stars? I don't know. I, 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 I want to see the replay. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's, a, that's an image that we see again in Revelation chapter 19 when Jesus comes uh, seated on the back of a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. His mouth has a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can't even look upon it. And when I saw him, 
John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. I think this is the thing we're all going to have in common. Was it um, uh, Sherry Hawko who, who would say something like this? When we see Jesus, we're going to be on our faces before him. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. Oh, you don't need to fear me. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Steve Green recorded a song. He holds the keys. Go look it up and be encouraged by this. It's been around for a long time now. It's an oldie. Uh, But look that up. Maybe we'll find that and put a link to it on our YouTube channel. Write, therefore, verse 19, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And, and Bible scholars like to take that sentence and make it into a three-point outline. The things that you have seen, the, the things in the past, the things that are, the present, and the things that are to come, the future. And uh, if you look at the book of Revelation through that three-point outline, It might help you make some sense out of things. And then he says, and oh, by the way, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The angels of the seven churches. Now, some scholars say that when Jesus talks about the angels of the seven churches, get this, this is is nuts. He means the pastors. <laughs> Maybe they're right, but I don't think so. I think he means that there is literally an angel assigned to each of his churches. We're not supposed to worship angels, by the way, but uh, if we have one, and if he's listening, or maybe she, I don't know. Thank you. Thank you for your faithful service for the Lord in the last 50 years, looking out over this crazy group of people. I mean that in the loving sense. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. The lampstands. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You are the light of the world. You don't, you don't light the light and put a, a basket over it. You set it on its lampstand, and then you let it shine. Lately, lately, it seems to me, from my limited point of view, my limited perspective, and I might, I might be... Uh, partial. I'm, I might not be an impartial observer, but it, lately it seems to me like the light is shining a little more brightly around here, and it's reaching a little farther. Last Saturday, some of the light uh, from this lampstand reached all the way into Davidge Park in Middletown. That was awesome. This next weekend, we're going to try to let the light shine very brightly right here. 
bright enough that others will see and be drawn toward it. So if you and I, as we look at this series of messages that Jesus has for his church, along the way we'll talk about some ideas that some people have to make sense of prophetically. Is there a sequence to these seven churches? Is it, you know, which church is representing what timeline are we, where are we? There, there's, some, there's some ideas, and then we'll probably make reference to them. But mostly, mostly, I just want us to look at each one of these messages and ask ourselves the question, is Jesus saying something to me? Is Jesus saying something to us about who we are and who we, he would like for us to be? And as we go through, starting in two weeks, each of these seven messages, I'm going to be asking that question myself, and I hope that as you listen and as you study on your own, you'll ask the question too. Is there something here for me? Just like as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, a number of us realized, hey, even though Jesus said these things nearly 2,000 years ago, man, it's like he's saying it right now and right here and right to me. And so I ask, I ask that you along with me will approach this study in Revelation 2 and 3 with open eyes, open ears, open hearts, and willing hands. This book, Revelation, is not just a book of prophecy. This book is a worship guide. And in the very first chapter, John shows us a glimpse of what it is to look intently at the Son of God, who we all honor and we all praise, to look carefully at Him and see what there is to see, learn what there is to learn, and praise Him for all that He is. We're going to do that in just a minute as we close. Heavenly Father, help us now. Uh, as we come to a, a conclusion of today's worship, but as we have introduced what is coming uh, for us in the next two months, help us to see you for who you are, high and lifted up, and help us to kneel before you and give you glory, because it is your due. All glory, all honor, and all praise belong to you. Amen.
is the Lamb. I can't wait for that day when we can stand around your throne and sing worthy is the Lamb. You are holy. God, we are so grateful for your gift of salvation. For the Son that you sent. We thank you, God, for all that you've done for us. And thank you is not enough. But it's all I have. I give you me. God, we just ask that you'd be with us this week as we go out, as we are among people, God. Help them see you in us. In everything that we do and everything that we say, may you be honored and glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name.